welcome to Focused on Life, where we'll be laser focused on all things that have to do with defending human dignity, human rights, and yes, human life at every stage and phase of development. I am your host, Uju. And I am your other host, Matt. And we are thrilled to be here today. Hello, Matt. Hi, Uju. How are you doing? I am doing really well, Matt, but I just want to ask you a question. Are it? you focused on life? <laughs> I am. I am so focused on life. Are you focused on life? I'm focused on life, Matt. Uh, but today, in addition to being focused on life, we are going to be focusing on something that we talk about all the time, and that is the United Nations. So today we're going to be laser focused on the UN. Yes. And to help us with being laser focused, we are so honored and grateful to have with us today uh, a friend of ours, an ally, uh, someone that we look up to, that we always turn to for advice, uh, yep. for, for assistance on all things UN related. Um, so uh, he's with us here today. And before we uh, get to this conversation with our wonderful guest, Stefano Gennarini. I'm just going to read out a short bio of Stefano. So uh, for those who don't know, Stefano is the Vice President for Legal Studies at the Center for Family and Human Rights, also known as CFAM. He represents CFAM at the UN headquarters in New York and researches and writes on international law and policy. He advises UN delegations and government officials and works with uh, a network of pro-life organizations as well. Uh, he earned his Juris Doctor from Notre Dame Law School, uh, was a Blackstone Legal Fellow in 2009, and before attending law school, he actually obtained a degree in theology as well. Stefano lives in New Jersey with his wife and their seven lovely children. Stefano, it's so good to have you here. I'm really grateful that finally we've been able to to get a forum like this where we can have someone like yourself come on and uh, and and speak with us so that people can can listen in uh, to to your expertise you know a bit of what we know but welcome to 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 focus on life podcast thank you for having me uju and matt thanks uh stefano it's just good i think we start from just a, a, not even just the basics but a bit something a bit more personal before we get into into the discussions we're going to have today just to give a bit of background that Matt and I have been you know many people who have listened to this show would know we've been going to the UN over the period of about 10 years um but you are one of the few few people who I know on the pro-life side or pro-family side who are based at the United Nations, because anytime we mention that we've been to the U UN event or or we have been to, to different things at the UN, like CSW, the Commission on Status of Women, the um, CPD on Population and Development, we are, we are speaking as people who go and come out. Maybe we go there for a week or two weeks of event, but you're one of those who are sort of permanently based there. So your expertise, I think you are the best that we can get, you know, and you are really the best there is as far as these um, discussions we're going to have would be concerned, just so that people would know the privilege it, it is to, to get someone like you or to listen to someone like you speak about the United Nations where you are fighting battles on a daily basis. So uh, you're the, as we said in the introduction, you are the vice president for uh, for legal studies at 
CFAM, which of course is the go-to organization for all things UN. And you are the go-to man uh, for all things legal, um, uh, from the legal side of things at, at CFAM. So thank you so much for being here. Matt, is there anything you want to add to that? Because you, you I mean, Stefano has been our friend for you for a number of years and from our encounters with him at the UN. Well, yeah, I mean, I echo everything you said. I, Stefano, you know, you've been you've been my go-to guy for so many years uh, on all things policy related. And um, and we've learned a lot from you. I mean, we, you know, every year uh, you do training sessions for all these newcomers to come to the UN. Uh, you train even experts, people who uh, are experts in their own countries. But the first time they come to the UN, it's kind of like you're you're opening them to the world of the United Nations, how the United Nations works, what we should be focusing on, um, what we should be looking at, uh, the war over language and why that matters. Um, so. I guess my first question to you is, Stefano, how do you do how do you do this? How do you even sleep <laughs> at night when you see this day in and day out? Uh, you know, Uj and I talk about these battles that we've had here and there, but you battle these things out every single day uh, along with your colleagues at CFAM. So how do you do it? And why, why maybe did you even get involved? Why did you end up or how did you end up at the UN? So I'll start with the easy easy question, which is how I ended up at the UN. I ended up at the UN straight out of law school uh, before, um, um, you know, I, I went to law school after having trained to be a priest and almost getting ordained. So, um, and uh, I went to law school and I thought, um, you know, I want to do something boring and lucrative. I was sort of stressed out after leaving the seminary. Um, and instead, um, somehow I felt sucked into the pro-life struggle. Uh, it, was, it wasn't something that, uh, you know, I, I set out to do initially. But um, I did an internship my first summer, which had me researching uh, international pro-life um, advocacy and uh, the, the work of uh, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights in promoting abortion. Uh, throughout Latin America. And I was very struck by this work. And, um, but I, I, I even, that was my first year of law school. I didn't even take it any further than that. But then my final year of law school, um, it was the, was, it was 2011. It was the year when the financial crisis really hit the legal markets. So there weren't a lot of law jobs around. And I was blessed that my university, the University of Notre Dame, was going to give us a stipend to work for six months for the government or for a nonprofit. And because I had come across uh, CFAM, I applied to do um, an internship with CFAM and uh, as a researcher for the University of Notre Dame. That was the, the kind of uh, the deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, and eventually that became a full-time job, which is, so I sort of stumbled into the, <laughs> the pro-life movement in that That's way. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I, I was, I was very drawn to the, the pro-life debates on campus, even in, even in my first year of law school, it was the year that President Obama was elected and he came on campus at the University of Notre Dame. And that was very controversial. And I, I was part of a small group of students who were, you know, trying to raise hell about it and, you know, trying to um, do something about it. And, you know, we, we, we couldn't really do much at the time. Um, but, you know, that, you know, we were right. 
we were right. Obama Absolutely. was, without a doubt, the most uh, pro-abortion president in U.S. history. At the and time, yeah. And he set in motion a lot of the, the bad policies that are coming to fruition now. Yeah. One. Wow. This is. Uh, I. I didn't even realize. Okay. I think maybe once you mentioned to me that you were in the seminary. You know. I think vaguely I remember that. But it's quite interesting how everything came together, and we're certainly grateful that you you did eventually end up at CFAM and you did eventually remain there to fight these battles every day. Because if not for the work that you're doing and the work that CFAM is doing, um, I think there would be a huge vacuum there. And a lot of bad things would have happened by now, I can assure you, because of, you know, CFAM, we we do get a lot of alerts on things that are coming at the UN. You know, you, you give a lot of warnings. Now, let me just start with this question. Um, the language is something, I think, from my first year going to the UN, is something that I have been hearing language matters. It didn't, It to me, it didn't, it, you know, it for me, it wasn't much so much a big deal whether somebody says pro-choice or, or pro-abortion or, you know, things like that. I wouldn't struggle or fight so much over language. But when I got to the UN the, from the first year, from the very first negotiation that I witnessed, um, I saw or learned that language is something that is so important. But more so, I think you can explain more so why why language really matters from the point of view of someone who is fighting at the UN or raising awareness at the United Nations. Sure, that's a really good point. Uh, language matters, especially when it has legal implications. Um, so it's, it's a common misconception that UN resolutions are not binding, and so they don't matter. A lot of people will say, oh, well, UN resolutions, well, that's just not binding, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but in actual fact, UN resolutions are binding. They are binding on the UN system. So they constitute a sort of body of administrative law in that sense, because they govern the agencies, the different parts of the UN uh, machinery. And so they are binding, in, in fact. Um and moreover, they're not just binding on the UN system from a sort of the point of view of the programmatic view. They can also be evidence of customary international law. That is the idea that over time, countries agreed uh, that certain things are binding obligations under international law. And and this is what they're, the pro-abortion groups are trying to do. You know, we've known this since the year... 2001, uh, when uh, somebody anonymously dropped off at the CFAM office a uh, a, um, a manual, a strategy manual from the Center for Reproductive Rights, the the most uh, the most well funded pro abortion uh, uh, litigation group in the world. They're, they're mm. a pro abortion law firm that does work all around the world, and and mm. their strategy was precisely this. What we want is to establish a right, an international right to abortion through customary international law. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to push language about sexual and reproductive health and other such euphemisms in UN resolutions. And concurrently, we're going to have that language implemented by UN agencies and then interpreted by international courts and national courts as an international right to abortion. Um, and that's the strategy all along because they know that politically 
abortion is not a winning issue almost anywhere. I mean, wherever mm. you discuss abortion in any country, even in the most liberal ones, ultimately people are willing to accept certain restrictions. And in almost every country, abortion outside of the times it's permitted is considered a crime. You know, it's this is universal in the world yes. with with very few exceptions. And so um, because and, and the and that's just evidence of how politically unpopular abortion is as an issue. And therefore, uh, the abortion movements way of of trying to enshrine an international right to abortion is through um, through subterfuge, uh, through stealth, mm -hmm. um, through. Um, you know, through lies and through uh, bureaucratic means that, you know, an unaccountable bureaucratic means. Uh, so that's what we're seeing. And, and so that's why they want language. That's that's getting back to the question of why language matters. Yes. That That's why they want language about sexual and reproductive health in UN resolutions. So these resolutions are not only will give a mandate to the UN system to promote abortion, through the euphemism sexual and reproductive health. But there's also a um a question of establishing a a right to abortion by custom, by simply by repetition of these phrases and by their implementation as if they included abortion as a right, um, which is what we're seeing from UN agencies. Interesting. And uh, you know, Stefano, when you say all this the first thing that comes to mind and as a Canadian, I can just hear time and time again, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister and other pro-abortion politicians, they are constantly repeating the lie that abortion is a human right. They say it in their press conferences, in their press releases, whenever they're making another large funding announcement, it's all under the, you know, it's all presented through this lens that abortion is a universal human right the UN agreed about, you know, the, the UN agrees, uh, mm -hmm. the whole world agrees. So that's why <laughs> it, it's okay for us to push this forward. Okay. Yeah. And so, like you said, it's, if you repeat something often enough, people will start to believe it. So the question is, if that's really not the case, like there is no universal human right to abortion, even though they're trying to pass one, like you said, through all these different means, that's still not the case. So why is it that politicians, whether it's in Canada or in other countries in the world, why do they keep repeating this when it's just not the truth? Well, as you hinted, Matt, the point of repeating that abortion is an international right is precisely to part of the strategy to establish abortion as an international right. So the idea is, even though it legally, it's an unfounded claim, and it's unfounded because... UN member states have rejected abortion as an international right every time it was debated, yeah. including in negotiations for the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the Conventions on the Rights of the Child, which says that children should be protected before birth, mm -hmm. the Convention um, on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, the, 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 the issue of abortion as a right was expressly addressed and shot down. Um, so... There simply is no grounds to claim that abortion is an international right. Um, 
based on the negotiations of sovereign states in these on these binding international treaties. And yet the strategy is to say that even though it was rejected then, states have gradually accepted it by um, using this term sexual and reproductive health in UN resolutions and by its repeated implementation by UN agencies, countries, courts, politicians, as including an international right to abortion. And, and so the more times you get politicians, the more times you get UN agencies, the more times you get national and international courts to interpret sexual and reproductive health as if it includes an international right to abortion, yeah. uh, then the, the greater evidence there is that abortion has become, in fact, a customary international right. Because what they're saying, the claim is simply that countries have ratified the implementation of these resolutions having to do with sexual and reproductive health by the mere adoption over and over again of this terminology and its constant and repeated implementation as including abortion rights. And yet, and yet, uh, even though this is a lie, it's not true, um, they, they, they're able to commit millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars for this particular cause, right? Uh, yeah. To help, uh, you know, uh, remove legal barriers to abortion, to help promote abortion, to set up abortion abortuaries in different parts of the world. It's like the wheels are in motion. The funding is behind this. And yeah. yet it's all funding a lie, essentially. Absolutely. And it's it's very deceptive. So, for example, at the United Nations, this is a common uh, refrain from the delegates we speak to. It'll be the very European delegations, as well as the U.S., Canada, Western, the Western delegations that are actually promoting abortion. And whenever these uh, African, Asian, Middle Eastern delegations pose an objection to these these terms that are controversial that are ambiguous because of abortion or lgbt concerns or parental rights concerns well what the western countries will say well but this resolution isn't binding you know you don't need to worry yeah, about yeah. <laughs> this and at the same time their very strategy is premised on the legal implications of adopting that language in in those resolutions uh, we got a case of this with, which was comical in the first year that biden was in the white house he sent a special envoy to the un special ambassador uh, to um for the adoption of a resolution on sexual violence um and uh, he was there because uh, you know, it, when there's an important resolution that you put a lot of importance to, you send a special somebody who has a special mandate to deliver yeah. specific specific statements mm-hmm. or specific messages. And we were in the balcony of the General Assembly, myself and my colleague Lisa. And uh, while we were there, we saw there was a gathering of activists. And so I got nearer and I realized that this this U.S. ambassador was talking to them. It was telling them, well, this resolution is so important because, you know, by repeating this language in U.N. resolutions, and he was talking specifically about language having to do with linking safe abortion to sexual reproductive health and as well as language about discrimination 
that is interpreted to include LGBT issues. He says, by the he was telling the activists, by adopting this language over and over in UN resolutions, we can establish an international right. <laughs> and minutes later, he went down into the General Assembly Hall. Um, and from the podium of the General Assembly, he said the standard language that U.S. diplomats are required to say whenever a, a, U, a U.N. resolution is adopted, especially if it has issues that they don't like. And it said that, well, this this resolution does not change the status of international law, hmm. of customary yeah, just... international law. So you you get that double speak constantly. Yeah. On the yeah. on the one hand, they're telling the delegates, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. This is non-binding. Um, it's not going to change customary international law." And on the other hand, they're going to the activists who are promoting abortion, LGBT rights, and they're saying, "We are going to create an international right to abortion and gay marriage by promoting this language." Wow. Well, Stefano, there is so much that goes on at the UN. I know people kind of on the periphery, people know that, but in practice, I don't know that they really understand um, the, how much the active, how much the role will be the role of the activists who actually come to the UN. And you did, you did say you looked out from the balcony and you saw activists. There are lots and lots of activists who gather at the UN at several of these important events but they are not necessarily our own activists. It's very, very few, like a handful of maybe pro-life people who who can go, who go to the UN or who get to go to the UN or put it on their shadow. But I would like people to understand um, that there are a number of events, particularly a number of events that happen during the year that if nothing else, if one cannot be based at the UN, at least some pro-life activists um, and advocates can begin to be more aware of these events. Um, I'm talking about CSW, I'm talking about CPD. So I would like you to kind of explain a bit about these two major events, or if there are any other events as well that we should be interested in, that we should be engaged on or hooked on to or watching as it as it unfolds um, each year at the UN. Explain to us about these events and also just the very, in a very summary, summary way, the procedures that happen because you've talked about negotiation you've talked about outcomes you know there are certain things that you're you're talking about which of course are, are very relevant to to what happens at the UN but put it for us in one picture like this is what happens these are the events this is the general procedure protocol to what happens and at the end there are these things called outcome documents or resolutions so yes, you know, in international law and in international policy, you've got treaties, which are the sort of the highest form of law. They're binding, they're negotiated by states and adopted formally according to whatever constitutional process every state has. Yes. Um, but then there's also a, a whole set of uh, resolutions, agreements, declarations that are political in nature. That is, they're not uh, they're not technically binding on states. They're more expressions of a political will, a desire to accomplish certain policy aims. Um, at the same time, these resolutions have a programmatic implication. So they are binding, even though they're not binding on states, they are binding on the UN system. So very, very often you will have UN resolutions to address the right to food, mm -hmm. the right to water, yeah. you know, the specific human rights issues like freedom of expression, 
or um, a, a particular humanitarian crisis. There's there's been declarations on universal health care, um, on uh, the situation of rural women, on the girl child, on the rights of children. So yeah. these resolutions, what these resolutions do is they, they give an, a, a political outline of where countries stand on what on what their expectations for these specific issues are. But then they also direct the UN system to carry out programming consistent right. with the UN resolutions. And you've got about in the General Assembly, which is the highest UN body and the most important one, you've got over 350, roughly almost almost 400 resolutions now adopted yearly. Hmm. Which is you, you could consider that as a massive body of administrative law. Sure. Um, and then but uh, aside from what happens in the General Assembly, there's also other UN bodies, including the Human Rights Council and the Economic and Social Council. The Human Rights Council is a sub is sort of a subsidiary of the General Assembly, and it deals only with human rights. And then on the other side, here in New York, you have the Economic and Social uh, Council. And it deals with uh, development matters. And it, what it has is it has functional commissions that um, adopt resolutions or agreements that govern the UN development system. So they're very influential in that way. They are designed specifically as governance for the UN development system. And every year, there are certain of the, these commissions that are part of the Economic and Social Council that we follow very closely because right. of their Im impact uh, on life and family issues. Um, these include the Commission on Social Development, which is usually in February, mm -hmm. uh, which is usually uh, a commission where uh, the family issues come up and are debated very often. Um, then there's the Commission on the Status of Women, which mm -hmm. is the... the the largest feminist international feminist conference in the world. Uh, so I think the last time there was like seven thousand uh, NGO wow. feminist NGOs that came to UN headquarters to participate in the Commission on the Status of Women. It lasts two weeks. There's events. There's cocktail parties. There's <laughs> diplomatic. Uh, engagements between high-level ministers of countries uh, and UN officials right. and, and and it lasts for two weeks I mean it's a yeah. very it's <laughs> a very important uh, event in the schedule of every minister uh dealing with family women's issues children they come they will come at some point or they will send someone uh to participate because they know how important it is and and um and, and this is in March. What time and the, of the year? This and is the in commission about March. On, that's right. The Commission on the Status of Women is in March every year. And then there's the Commission on Population and Development, uh, which is usually in April. And um it's sometimes concluded uh, uh well both the CSW and CPD. Uh, if you're a Christian, they 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 intrude terribly upon Holy Week and <laughs> Easter Week uh, at times. Uh, it's it's incredibly annoying, uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it's happened that uh, we've had the adoption of the the final agreement of the Commission on the Status of Women on Good Friday. On Good Friday, that's and right. It, <laughs> and and it was uh, indeed it was a Calvary for all of us. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so there's uh, so and what happens at these um, at these commissions is they're like conferences. They're so there's a 
an official intergovernmental part where countries make debates, uh, where there's uh, panel discussions about policy issues. There's also a bunch of side events and side discussions that are going on, hundreds, at oftentimes hundreds of events. And then th there's parallel to all the official meetings and the side events, there's also a negotiation going on for a final agreement for the session. And the session usually has a specific theme. And, and so there's these, in, what, are, what are called intergovernmental negotiations ongoing. And many times these are these are start weeks ahead of the conference. Right. So for the Commission on the Status of Women, which is the you know the biggest one out of all of these and the most influential in some ways, um, you do get uh, negotiations starting uh, at the end of January. So at the end of January, they will release a draft, and in fact, the the process to create that draft begins already in the fall. So for the next Commission on the Status of Women, the process. The ex there's been already expert group meetings that are discussing what should go into the the initial draft of the agreement for next year for next year for next wow. March and mm -hmm. uh, and then they'll release it they'll prepare the the bureau and the secretariat of UN Women uh, will prepare a zero draft by the end of January normally um, and then throughout February and March it will be negotiated. Well, okay. Stefano, with, uh, without going into uh, specific details on strategies and tactics, uh, but you mentioned that since, you know, the, well, since 2001, perhaps even earlier, uh, when the first Cairo conference took place and the first uh, CSW in Beijing took place, the first conference there, um, you've said that the activists have been trying to do everything they can in their power using this blueprint to uh, enshrine a universal right to abortion. It's 2023, and they have, to date, failed to do so. Because like you mentioned, there is no universal right to abortion. So um, I know when I first got involved uh, with Campaign Life Coalition uh, at the UN, uh, I, was, I met a lot of these veterans, people who have been fighting the good fight for many, many years, okay? And you mentioned, you know, there's like 7,000 feminist NGOs that take part in this commission, CSW, for example. And we don't have 7,000 pro-life NGOs that also participate. There's very few of us out there who, who attend these meetings. Uh, some of us attend them a few times a year. Uh, organizations like CFAM and others uh, like yourself, you are there on a daily basis. And I just think there's so much hope. When I, when I hear this, I say to myself, look at this. We, we are so few. And yet we have been able to accomplish so much or at least mitigate so much. And uh, a part of me thinks, well, that's because we're on the right side, right? Like you said, most governments, most nations are on our side. They agree with our position more so than the position of IPPF, for example, or MSI or all these other abortion uh, activist organizations. So the question is, do what, what do pro-life organizations, what should we be doing uh, going forward? Do we still you know, keep doing what we've been doing, mm -hmm. working with our allies, partnering with other states, uh, trying to expose this, this kind of global abortion agenda? Uh, is there anything else that we can be doing? Um, for those folks uh, listening you know, in their own country, uh, they, they're not going to go to the UN. Uh, but what can they do uh, politically? Uh, with their own members of parliament, with their own congresspeople, 
what can they do? How can they get involved to at least contribute to this type of you know global fight uh, against abortion? So I, I really do think that the, the abortion crowd, it, as always throughout history since Roe v. Wade, has always been anti-democratic. So essentially, they they want to bypass um, the ability of people to make decisions for themselves through their elected representatives, um, and they want to use bureaucracy, committees, obscure processes to uh, you know promote abortion. So I I think the most important thing is really to to inform. Um, the public of what's going on. And, you know, that's one of the core missions of CFAN, which is to inform the public about the debates that are happening about life and family at the UN behind closed doors, uh, very often away from any scrutiny or accountability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, you, Uju, you'll be interested to know this, you know, a, a lot yeah. of Afri African countries, you know, when you go to Africa, when it comes to abortion and LGBT issues, they're very brave and they'll speak very bravely and they'll give a very strong talk. But that is true. When you come to the United Nations, very often they they won't speak, they won't say anything. Same. And and it's simply because there's this agenda that is being promoted by Western countries, um, which is silencing them. You know, developing countries, countries in Africa and Asia. Who are who come here with with their hand outstretched for assistance? Essentially, that's right. Uh, are find it very difficult to uh, to oppose this agenda, and yet it, it, it's it's so it's all happening behind closed doors without any accountability. You know, if people in Africa were actually knew yes. what what their representatives at the United Nations were accepting and putting up with, they would be absolutely outraged. That's um, right. But uh, we don't see that because it's all happening behind closed doors. So I think we are at a stage that pro-lifers really need to be able to inform um, uh, the public of what's going on, because unless people have the information, they will not be able to act on it. And then once you have the information, depending what political process is going on, depending on what kind of influence you have, then you can set things in motion to to impact the the international debate uh from the point of view of cfem what we've been doing and what we've done a lot worked really hard to do is to get delegations to contest bad language in order to prevent the development of a customary international right to abortion so sorry stefano and by saying delegations I know what it is, but I want you to to explain who are the de who are the delegates or who are these delegations that you're trying to inform. CFAM is trying to inform. So there's 194 uh, states at the United Nations, and every one of them has an embassy or a, what's called a mission to the United Nations, which is led by an ambassador, also yes. called a permanent representative, who has you know who has the plenary power of the country that he represents. Right. He's he's called the ambassador plenipotentiary, which means he has full power yeah. uh, to represent his country. Uh, and uh, together he will have a team of counselors, of uh, secretaries, 
that essentially help him to negotiate all the different multilateral negotiations that are ongoing. I said there's 350 UN resolutions. On top of that, there are executive boards of UN agencies and many um, a multiplicity of processes here at the United Nations. Uh, I mean, the UN system is as complex as the federal government, if you like. And and, uh, even though it may not be as big, um, it, it certainly can compete with the U.S. State Department, even in terms of personnel numbers and everything else. So, um, so you you've got uh, so you've got these these processes, and um, and the United Nations system is governed by these member states through these missions. Right. Um, so those those are the missions, and so what we they're supposed to faithfully represent the positions of their countries in UN negotiations. Sure. The idea the idea of the United Nations is to have a sort of uh, international cooperation. Um, and then that's another debate that uh, issue dis- that we may can discuss, you know, how the UN has trans- is is becoming more and more a, a colonial mechanism as uh-huh. opposed to a, a a mechanism for international cooperation but between sovereign states. But but with regards to what we try to get delegations to do is we try to get them to oppose bad language negotiations. Right. including terms like sexual and reproductive health or multiple intersecting forms of discrimination, sexual orientation and gender identity, explicit yeah. language on abortion, all these controversial things. We try to get them um, comprehensive sexuality education. We try to get yes. them to fight, fight against all this. And then many times it's impossible for them to, to actually keep these issues out because of how much leverage the developing, the, the, the Western countries have, yeah. you know, money, Money. Many times, it all it takes is a is a phone call to capital, yeah. to to shut up a diplomat who's been outspoken, you know, in the mm-hmm. UN process. And we've seen this happen many times, uh, even with countries that you wouldn't believe, you know, very conservative countries like Nigeria, Cameroon. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Egypt, that's... Saudi Arabia. Terrible. We have seen many many occasions where these countries had staked out very strong positions, and we knew they were committed to doing the right thing. But you know, a visit from Anthony Blinken, a phone call from uh, President Obama. And um, before you know it, they've withdrawn their position and the bad language gets into the UN resolution. And, and we've seen that over and over again. And so what we what because we see this imbalance of power, for us, the most important thing is for states to keep the issues contested. So to be able to get at the end of the adoption of a of a resolution and on the record of the General Assembly to make known their position against abortion, against uh, LGBT issues, so that it's clear that though the use of that language in human resolutions cannot be used to impose rights and new rights or to create new rights by custom, because right. simply by contesting that language, you prevent the development of that right. And the, the biggest, the really the strongest um, uh, evidence we have against an international right to abortion is the contestation and oh. the, the the that's why it was so fantastic during the trump administration to have uh, the geneva consensus declaration 
Yeah. Um, um, oh, we have to have you on to discuss more. I mean, there's so many things that have happened even in recent years, the, the change of administration in the United States and what that meant to someone like yourself, where you were watching things happen and changing in real time. So I think we'll have to have you back to, you know, to talk about the Geneva, the uh, Geneva Consensus Declaration and, and all of that. But there's so much. We we would there's one thing though before we finish we would want you to go into so i'm trying to save a bit of time here uh like to give you a chunk of time to to explain something that is topical that has happened man we were talking about it the other day maybe you can you can bring that up about the the pandemic uh, treaty just yeah yeah well we were yeah we were talking about just this idea of uh, abortion language or just problematic language being infused or injected into into things, into agreements, documents that really have nothing to do or should not have anything to do with killing children in the womb, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and yet, um, the WHO, uh, it's uh, I guess it's in the negotiation process now where they're just trying to finalize it or figure it out, uh, the Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response Accord. Um, and uh, I was actually reading uh, uh, Friday Facts, which is CFAM's uh, weekly kind of uh, update newsletter that goes out to hundreds of thousands of people across the world. Yeah. If you haven't signed up to Friday Facts, please do so. Go to CFAM. I was <laughs> going no... to plug it just now. I had I had it just here noted down for people to go to Friday Facts and make sure we'll, that they're getting we'll, Friday Facts. <laughs> we'll definitely include it in our show notes. But anyhow, yeah. go, going back to this. <clears throat> Um, Stefano, I was reading one of your articles about this, and even in this pandemic treaty, they're trying to infuse abortion language, or they're trying to open up the door for uh, for SRHR, Sexual and Productive Health and Rights, and just abortion on demand. Can you tell us what is going on with this, and why is the WHO so invested in including abortion language into these documents? Um, so. Without a doubt, we know that the pandemic process is being used to promote abortion. Um, this is uh, a fact. The United States was upfront about this in the first the negotiation about the pandemic treaty. Uh, the representative of the United States said two things. First, we want sexual reproductive health to be part of essential services in this pandemic accord. Mm -hmm. Sexual reproductive health being, of course, a... Uh, euphemism for abortion sure. um, and um, and they said we don't want the pandemic negotiations to be open to the public that's the, the two things that the, the united states said, said. And, and the, the only the only one the only one delegation that agreed with the united states uh, on this on the second point on keeping the negotiations secret was china you know wow even, even, <laughs> But oh geez. So oh, but but they got what they asked for. You know, if two big delegations like that ask for secrecy, then that's what you get. So they got secrecy. So we don't really even know what's what's going on in the negotiations. It's very hard to get information. And um and we can we can be pretty sure that this pandemic treaty is going to get adopted because it's being pushed both by the European Union and the United States. And when you have both the European Union and the United States pushing something, it's yeah. very hard to, to conceive 
of, of a way to block it because simply they have so many buttons to push, so much yeah. leverage in all yeah. capitals in the world that uh, that they're going to get it through if they want it. And, um, and so the idea is to ensure that uh, abortion access becomes essential, an essential form of healthcare through pandemic preparedness uh, and response uh, policies. And it's going to create a, a, a funds, like a, a stream of policies mm-hmm. and funds going to developing countries for their health systems. The pandemic tre- uh, treaty is going to create not just, it's not just a question of, uh, of uh, you know, est- establishing abortion as a health service and just leaving it out there. It's going to be implementing funded. it also. It's yeah. going to be funded. So there's going to be a direct line from WHO, CDC, and other agencies into the health systems of different governments to push abortion as an essential service. And, you know, we've seen this from the World Health Organization from the beginning of the the pandemic in in 2020. We saw in the 2020 pandemic, we saw from the very first weeks, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 10 days into the pandemic. That's right. The first guidance of the World Health Organizations on how to address the respiratory disease of (laughs) of the coronavirus um, it included saying, oh, well, when you do triage decisions about what is essential, you cannot deny women, uh, you know, right. abortion, abortion, abortion that's you right. know, and, and, and it was, there was, there was pressure on U.S. states like Texas, I think it was Alabama, uh, Florida and others that did not designate abortion as essential. And in fact, shuttered cl- uh, abortion clinics during the pandemic. That's they closed right. down abortion clinics during the pandemic because they said, "Well, this is not an essential service." Um, and uh, the UN system, uh, the WHO, the um, the Secretary General, uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and several UN experts complained to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with official complaint letters saying that the United States was obligated by under international law um, under the uh, to to allow abortion. So you know we know that this is part of the the of what the of what the WHO and what the donors, the liberal countries want to do through pandemic policies. We know that this this is one of the things that they want to use these emergencies to do is to to promote abortion. And uh, so we can expect a lot more of this going forward. And, um, you know, we're going to be have to be very, very watchful and and hopefully be able to create some some good contestation on this issue uh, when the when the pandemic treaty is actually uh, officially negotiated next year. Stefano, we will definitely include a lot of these resources in our show notes. Uh, So for those of you listening uh, on our website, uh, below the podcast episode, we we try to include a whole description of things, resources, links. So we will definitely include everything we've been talking about today in those show notes. Um, Stefano, I have one final question because I know you got to go, but... Among a lot of uh, pro-life or mainly conservative circles, but even amongst pro-lifers, um, you often hear them saying, uh, 
the UN's evil. Why even bother getting involved? We shouldn't even be there. And uh, and yes, I would agree that there's a lot of bad things coming out of the UN, evil things like we've been talking about, <laughs> uh, without a doubt. Yes. Why? But why should there be a pro-life voice at the United Nations? Uh, why should we be there? You know, it's it's one of my greatest uh, frustrations uh, that uh, conservatives don't engage the United Nations. Um, I, I wish, you know, if if more conservatives organizations had staff fully involved in UN processes um, in the same way that they're involved on, for example, on the Hill, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like we could get so much more done at the UN and the UN, UN would be so much less of a threat. Um simply because uh, right now the United Nations is just a playing ground for progressives and leftists of all kinds who are advancing their agenda virtually unopposed. Um, That's simply a fact. You know, conservatives uh, do not believe in international institutions. They see these as only a threat, but at the same time, they feel like they can just be ignored. So which one is it? There seems to be an inconsistency there. Are they an actual threat? And if so, if they're a threat, you should be there be and actually un- un- and understand what that threat actually is. But the, mm. but it, and, but sadly, conservatives simply are not involved. You'll rarely find a conservative news outlet at the United Nations, even at the Security Council stakeouts on issues like Palestine. You know, it's conservatives simply are just not present. Um, what what they relate about the United Nations is very often second and third hand news, and yeah. and it, they're never there directly uh, following the news at first person or even trying to make the news through at the UN, mm-hmm. and it's a great disadvantage because the way international cooperation is designed is and the, the way the UN Charter is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the founding documents of the UN are they're quite conservative. They're set up in a way to uh, promote uh, international cooperation between sovereign states and uh, not global governance, not the imposition of of abortion or controversial social issues. There are express provisions in the Charter, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that make all of this completely illegal. And yet we don't have the organizations that are uh, investing the resources, the personnel that's necessary to first of all get the U.S. government and yes. sort sort of promoting uh, a conservative understanding of international cooperation, um, and then there's not the, and then also globally. But if if you if if whenever a conservative government were elected in the United States, they were to advance a conservative vision of international cooperation, they would get so much support from other countries. Mm. especially if they were to back it up with uh, financial programs, uh, mm. uh, aid programs. Um, and But sadly, we don't see that. We don't see that happening. And uh, it's sort of crippling our ability to uh, to block bad, bad things coming down the pipe because um, the, if the international system becomes only a colonial mechanism for imposing, you know, woke policies on the world, Mm. Then it then it it's it, it can be a very dangerous thing because it will mean that we we will either uh, it you know the the international system either becomes a a, a, a sort of a, a 
an oppressive force. Yeah. Or it will become irrelevant. One of the two. Either ways, you know, I, I do think there is a place for international cooperation. I think conservatives should uh, should understand that place and 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 sort of carve it out in an important way. With conservatives, especially in Western countries, of course, uh, speaking from the point of view of an African who has come to this whole left and right conservatives and liberals, I, I came to it to, as an observer. And I see that with the liberals, at least this is my own um, observation, they're very interested in the international. You know, some of my liberal friends, they really want to get involved, go to Africa, go to the U.S. They, they're, they're more international minded but then unfortunately my conservative friends of course where i'm at home right would be more the country first patri- you know patriotic yes and that's all very important um but as you say uh, stefano it's they should take it more it's not like we're going global governance but they should take it more like international co- cooperation international collaboration you know i think that's that's a better view but it's very unfortunate i think that conservatives in western countries don't show much interest in anything outside of their own local politics i'll, I'll give you one blaring example and yeah. that was you know the governments of poland and hungary you know who mm-hmm. have phenomenal internal, internal policies with regards mm-hmm. to marriage the family life yeah. Uh, but when it comes to international cooperation, they are indistinguishable from the European Union. Wow. They simply stand by everything the European Union does. And there's very little, very little room for them to to do anything different. In fact, they even just now they're supporting the nomination of uh, a radical pro-abortion law professor to the International Court of Justice, Sarah Cleveland. You know, we've had a campaign to stop her from becoming uh, the top legal advisor at the State Department, which was successful. We were able to block her in the U.S. Senate. Very good. Very good. But the Biden administration nominated her to the International Court of Justice, and every European member state supported that. And Including uh, Hungary and including Poland. Including Hungary and Poland. So, Same. That's and, it, and, it's, and it's a shame because, you know, in Poland, the conservatives were in power for eight years, for two full terms. Yeah, and uh, they really did very little to change uh, EU policy. They simply did not have the will, the tools, the personnel to do it, and um, and it's very sad because now that now that they lost the government, all that agenda that they did, failed to block at the European level and internationally is going to come back in with yeah. a vengeance yeah. and it's and the leftists are just going to bring it back in and and so it's it's sort of a sort of a, a cautionary tale for hungary and other countries that still have conservative governments if you don't fight this agenda aggressively the minute you step out of power it's going to come back and just devour you uh, the liberals don't miss opportunities. This is the thing. The liberals don't meet up, up, miss opportunities. If you put them in office for one year, within the year, they will establish comprehensive sexuality, education, abortion, everything, you know, surgery. They will bring in everything. But a conservative comes in and they're looking more local. They're, you know, they're just in that one spot trying to tighten everything around them. Um, and I, I think these are things that we we need to listen more to, to you, uh, Stefano, and to your organization, CFA 
Pam, you're doing incredible work. You're seeing the actual results of, of uh, you know, countries' reactions and the way they, they have worked over the years and the outcomes of what they have done. We're so grateful for your time, for your expertise, for the for the witness that you are there for on behalf of so many of us. So uh, we, we really are grateful for your work. And we're going to plug the work of CFAM today. And, and we hope that you, you keep coming back to this show. That's, that's for sure, because we want people to know more about these you know, some of these um, pro-life concerns that I, you know, perhaps are not very much mainstream and they're not out there every day being discussed at pro, you know, by other pro-life organizations or pro-life programs and shows. So thank you, Stefano. <laughs> thank you, Drew. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Stefano, for coming. And um, I guess we can start wrapping up our show, Drew. Wow, Matt, <laughs> what an incredible guest. I mean, everything he's talking about seems to be loaded. So this is this is this is unbelievable. Even for myself that I go to the UN, you know, have gone to you know all these last 10 years. Even for me, I feel this is a very loaded conversation we've just had with him. Yeah. And you know what, Uju? I, I have listened to Stefano speak many times, give presentations, training sessions, and and uh I I learned so much today. <laughs> yeah. Even after knowing him for so many years and listening yeah. to him speak on these issues. Um what a great! I really do think this is a, this was a great episode, a great conversation filled with information. Uh, what a great way to educate yourself to to get informed. Uh, well, it just feels wow. like the surface, Matt. It just it still feels to me like there is so much because I I feel like with someone like Stefano, he knows so much about the UN that it this can go so deep that we definitely have to have him on. We yes. definitely have to have him on again and again because it seems with any treaty or any resolution that comes out, there is so much happening in the background, in the background. So that's right. You know, maybe maybe we can evolve to like one of those long format podcasts that take five hours. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, even then, we probably wouldn't even get to uh, to the, everything that Stefano yeah, has to UN say. Yeah, the UN is another world. And, and because they're, they're based there all year round, I think they see so many things that happen behind closed doors, you know, uh, behind the scenes that we, right. def, there's so much to, to be gained and there's so much to be gleaned from just from having him on as a guest. I'm glad we we finished off by talking about the importance of pro-lifers and, and even more so conservative-minded people. That's true. Of, of getting involved in, because far too often they dismiss what happens at the UN. Mm -hmm. And when you when you're not part of the conversation, what happens? Well, then you don't actually have a say in anything. It's a vacuum. You leave a vacuum in your That's presence. That's right. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens behind you. So. All right. Well, yeah. let's let's wrap things up. Uh, once sure. again, if, if you have any questions or comments about today's episode, feel free to email us at focusedonlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, focusedonlifepodcast.com. Uh, where we have all our other episodes. Uh, we're on all the popular platforms. So whether it's Spotify or Google or Amazon Music, and I believe uh, we're getting on Apple as well. So uh, please subscribe. Make sure to subscribe to get notified every time a new episode drops. And um, what else? Oh, yes. We will include in our show notes in the description of the podcast yep. Uh, details on uh, the things we talked about. That pandemic treaty uh, is one of them. We'll send a link. Uh, maybe it's some articles that CFM put out exposing right. what's really happening. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have a link to the CFAM website. Please subscribe to their Friday Facts. I've been getting it for over 10 years now. And it's yeah. just every Friday morning, you get an email with the latest updates from what's happening in Turtle Bay and at the UN. So it's very, very informative. It is, for sure. So put everything in the show notes and, you know, click on on, on the links and, and educate yourself. So. That's it, Matt. I guess uh, I guess we're done for today. Um, <laughs> we're done for today. <laughs> Till the next episode. But we're really grateful that you know to keep coming back to to do this to get the opportunity to to discuss um, on on these very important issues that seem to constantly just be out of mainstream. So so uh, you know, thank you for listening to us definitely, and thank you for for you know downloading this episode and please tell people about our podcast focused on life um share it subscribe as Matt said and and remain with us on this journey we're still on it and uh, w- and of course remain focused focused on life, on life. <laughs> <laughs> focused on life thanks friends bye yeah. bye